This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we cover Storage Grid 11 with Duncan Moore. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. I love NetApp because it's so funny. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. In the studio with me today, Andrew Sullivan. Hi, you're here. I am. Wait, I've been here for the last several times. I'm just hoping I don't devolve into a coughing fit. You today. weren't here last time. You were in on the WebEx. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I, but I was on the podcast. You were here. Yeah. So. No, my kids went back to school, so they came back as oh, little walking Petri dishes. That's so good. Now I have the... You know, the typical crud. Well, good. I'm glad to hear you have the crud. So, because, because, hey, at least we're not sharing a microphone this time. That's true. Yeah, that is true. Although, that's kind of, that's going to be kind of like one of those time machine things because that podcast isn't going to come out till a few weeks after this one. But anyway, or maybe people just don't know how often we share microphones. That's true. <laughs> anyway, uh, in the studio with me today, and also not sharing a mic, is uh, Duncan Moore. Hi, Duncan. How you doing? Good, doing to, be, good to be here. You got a Clemson yeah. shirt on. I do. I was at uh, uh, graduation a couple weeks ago. My yeah. daughter finished up a semester early, one less semester of out-of-state tuition for those in the U.S. that know what that means. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Congratulations I, to both of you. Thank you. I thought you were just, you know, being proud after the Wolfpack game last night. Yeah, NC that's, State. that's basketball. basketball. That yeah. doesn't count. Doesn't yeah. count? Okay. Yeah. I have another daughter uh, at Chapel Hill. We count basketball over there. We count football over at Clemson. It's probably the best policy there. And I don't want to talk about the football either, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that didn't go so well this year either. Well, it went all right. I mean, considering. It depends on whether or not you're a Clemson fan. I don't know, man. I mean, like, (laughs) making the playoffs is pretty good. (laughs) If you're a Duke fan like me, you just basically hope to make a bowl game. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so uh, Duncan is here because he, he does Storage Grid, and we're going to talk about the latest in Storage Grid, uh, Storage Grid 11. But before we do that, Duncan, tell everybody what your official title here is at NetApp and how we can reach you on social media. Uh, director of the Storage Grid Software Group here at NetApp. Uh, social media is NC Dunk. So think like UNC basketball, but NC Dunk. But with a C or a K? Uh, with a C, yeah, like short mm. for Duncan. Sorry, so I guess that's a bit confusing. That well, explains why I only have eight followers, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> but that NC Dunk guy, he's got like millions. Oh, he's got bazillions. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm. I always he's, think of Duncan Hines. He's bigly. Yeah. Bigly. So, uh, Duncan, um, let's start off by talking about Storage Grid. And for those of us on the podcast or that are listeners of the podcast that are not familiar with Storage Grid, could you give us the thousand foot view? Sure. Uh, Storage Grid is NetApp's uh, software-defined enterprise object storage platform, which is a big kind of marketing-sounding mouthful. Um, It might be easier for the listeners to know what it isn't. So it isn't data on tap or a feature of of on tap. It isn't FAS. It isn't E-Series. It is a separate uh, software-defined storage platform. can be consumed as VMs or Docker containers, even in purpose-built appliances. Uh, And it's used to solve a unique set of storage challenges that really only can be solved by object. So, uh, you know, some of the things we talk about are 
you know, massive global namespaces that can span, you know, maybe 16 data centers around the world holding billions and billions, you know, uh, over 100 billion objects in a single namespace. Uh, so in ju just a level set, right, just to set ground where we're at. So object storage, how is object different than POSIX? Is it different than block, right, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so a lot of times we get the questions about how is it different than file, right? Just because in general where we see a lot of the new massive use cases for object, they were kind of traditionally file use cases. Um, best to kind of look at a problem and then step away from there. So if you look at a, a problem where you're managing billions and billions of files, um, what ends up happening over time is you're spending more time balancing where these things live and provisioning and, and locating things than you are servicing that workload. Um, and, and an example we use, and I apologize for everyone who's heard me on the podcast before because I think we've used this example multiple times, to compare file to object would be to look at a scenario. Um, we'll, we'll do this as a parking analogy. You're going to a massive sporting event. So in Europe, maybe this is a World Cup event here. It might have been the Clemson-Alabama championship football game or, or semifinal. Uh, you you park your rental car at one of the many parking garages around the, the facility and the end of the game comes out, you wander out of the stadium. I've got to figure out what parking garage I parked in, what level, what section, what space. I might even have to remember what color my rental car is. This is similar to trying to locate files in massive unstructured data environments, what file server, what directory structure, what's the file name, extension, so on. Object storage is very different. Object storage is more like a data service to the application. It takes simple things like gets and puts to get things out of massively scalable repositories. In the case of this parking analogy, you could think of object storage like valet parking. I, I roll up to the front of the stadium. I hand a guy my keys. Hopefully he's a valet. He gives me a valet parking ticket in exchange. That is a unique identifier for my car. And at that point, this transaction is done. I don't care what happens. I don't care where it's parked. It could be parked many miles from the venue. There's an implied level of service that what I gave him is what I'm going to get back, right? But other than that, all of that management of where it's placed and is it in a performant location or a durable location, all those things that you have to manage yourself – it, when you park your car yourself or when you place a file somewhere, it goes away. And in this case, the valet is responsible in the case of object storage. The object storage platform is responsible for putting it in the right place, managing the right level of performance and durability and so on. So it makes it just a great fit for these massive unstructured environments. So uh, what type of use cases do we see object being, well, applied, right? I, I know that there is definitely, yes, I'm developing an application, when is object appropriate, but is there also any well-known commercial applications, right, things that I might go out and buy off of a proverbial shelf, aka Amazon, right, and be able to leverage uh, object storage with? Yeah, absolutely. And, and what we've seen over the years, um, the last few years, I've been doing object at NetApp for a little while, about four or five years now. Um, is that the use cases have been changing. We've seen more of them, and we're seeing them become more critical. The initial use cases that we'd see object tended to focus on kind of lower value data, things like archive and backup targets, right? In, in those 
use cases, object is perceived as the cheap and deep, right? The, the reason I'm going to it isn't because of any high value characteristics. It's because it is inherently less expensive than a lot of other options. But what we're seeing now is we're seeing a lot of higher value use cases moving to object. So uh, examples like uh, in the media and entertainment field, we're seeing object stores being used as the repository for media assets as they move through different phases of their life, right? This is critical primary data, right? And and the value object is delivering is the ability to handle these massive things, these billions of things, and to be able to have a namespace that can be shared across multiple sites. Maybe data is being, video is being captured in one studio. It's being, special effects are being added by somebody else somewhere else. It's being all put together and soundtrack added somewhere else. So the ability to share these assets uh, very easily without things like replication requirements and so on. That's one. Uh, the other is uh, we're seeing a lot more of these IoT type of use cases where you know, we're just gathering billions of uh, objects. Maybe it's imaging coming off of cars, right? Um, we have a, a few customers that are gathering all of the HD imaging coming off of their test cars in their manufacturing process or sensor data uh, that's part of a manufacturing or uh, you know, pipelining process somewhere else. So. Is there any sort of, for lack of a better term, a, a trigger or or a condition, right? Is there, am I doing something or at some point do I do something that says I need to move away from file and towards object or I should absolutely start with object when I'm doing this project? I, so I, I think, and, and this, this is probably because uh, I've, I've been living in the object world and I see everything through those glasses nowadays, I really kind of feel that... Um, we are moving in the direction with object uh, where in the same manner that virtualization appeared. So in, in the sense that when VMware, you know, as an example, came out, uh, it was originally used in kind of lower value workloads, right? You know, people weren't putting their primary databases and OLTP environments and things in virtual environments. And the procurement process in those worlds were, you know, oh, I, you know, I need to procure servers and network and all of that, or maybe I can try and do it with VMware. Well, I, I think most enterprises now are at a space that everything I ask for uh, as a as a customer of IT is going to be provisioned virtually to me unless I have quite a few signatures <laughs> to do an exception to procure actual hardware. I think we're going to see file-based workloads, almost all unstructured workloads, kind of start moving to these large object repositories by default, and only by exception are things going to be provisioned into file shares. Um, I mean, that's, that's, we're not anywhere near that now, but I see that direction. So to your question of, I, I see a lot of collaborative type applications being developed from the ground up using object. Um, and then there's other triggers just like scale. You know, when you get to a certain point that I'm now spending more time managing where things are landing than, than the business value of the service, then eh, that might be a trigger to move to object. Um, the other trigger might be the need to do, collaborate across a namespace that's spread out across geography. That that becomes something that's very difficult to do with anything but object. So, and I think that's a great segue into well, why you're here on the podcast today, right? And without spoiling all the fun, right, the rationale behind that or the reason behind that is we have a new version of Storage Grid. Yes. 
a, a, a very significant version of Storage Grid. So uh, this is version 11. Uh, we felt there was enough compelling content within this version to justify making the major version number leap. Um, we were at version 10.4 prior to this. Um, for folks that aren't uh, very familiar with Storage Grid, we do full feature releases of this product every six months um, and have done that for the past several years. Um, 11.0, which I'm kind of late in showing up for the podcast, it, we launched this at Insight. Um, this brought new hybrid cloud capabilities to Storage Grid and actually to object storage, period, that just have not existed in the past. Um, I think the best way to kind of explain this is to say, hey, when someone is looking at object storage, they've typically had a, a big initial choice to make. Am I going to do this in the cloud or am I going to do this on-premises? And there's there's reasons to go both directions, right? Um, there's also sacrifices you make in both directions. If I choose to deploy in S3 in Amazon, as an example, and you know the biggest object storage platform in the world, I, people aren't doing that because of the economy, the economy of or economics of S3. They're doing it because Amazon has surrounded their S3 with all of these tremendous other services. Right, whether it's you know elastic transcoding or MapReduce or image recognition, and you know you could refresh that page every day, and there's a new service that Amazon offers that can take advantage of S3. If I deploy on premises, historically, I'm making the decision that I'm not going to need or be able to take advantage of those services offered up there in the cloud. Now, likewise, if I deploy on premises, I might be saying. This is lower risk for me because of the nature of my data that I don't necessarily want it in the cloud. Or I might have the scale to operate this much less in a in much less expensive manner than if I was deploying it in the cloud. So you can you can make decisions both ways. What we've done with 11.0 is taken away that constraint. We've basically created a product with 11.0 that allows you to either bring the cloud, the Amazon services, to your on-premises object store or bring your objects from your on-premises object store to the cloud, depending on the workload, and in, in a totally native way to AWS. So that's really interesting, right? So effectively, the line between private and public is completely blurred and in a completely transparent manner from that application. Yeah, so we, we basically created the capability that you can have a workflow that um, data and compute can be happening anywhere. So I'll give you an example. Um, so I mentioned I, I could either bring my data to the cloud or I can bring the cloud to my data. Why, why would I make a decision one way or the other? Uh, let's say I've been collecting a lot of IoT data and I want to run um, Elastic MapReduce on it, which is one of these analytic services within Amazon. Well, that's one of these services that delivers performance partially through low latency access to the data that it's operating on. Well, I probably don't want to point that service across the wide area network to the data in my local object store. So in that situation, what we've introduced in 11.0 is a capability called Cloud Mirror. So for all of our ONTAP literate folks out there, think SnapMirror, but at an object bucket level. So the ability to set up an asynchronous replication relationship between a bucket in Storage Grid WebScale on-premises and a bucket in Amazon AWS. And unlike 
you know, what a lot of other object vendors do, which is like tiering things to Amazon, but then that thing becomes this opaque blob that doesn't look anything like an Amazon object. These objects, when they land in Amazon, look just like AWS S3 objects, and they can be acted upon by any of those services. So that's that's one way. That's us bringing the objects to the cloud. And we can do that at a bucket granularity or even a bucket plus prefix granularity to give you even more you know, selectivity. Now, there's other services in Amazon that you deliver performance by just running a ton of them, right? So let's say I'm doing uh, image recognition on a whole bunch of images of people that are coming through my business. And I want to say, oh, you know, what are the demographics of these people? How old are they? Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they confused? Are they wearing glasses, right? <laughs> these are all things that can be automatically detected by a service Amazon provides called recognition, which is an image recognition thing. Well, that delivers performance by just running a whole bunch of them. So in that case, I don't want to even send my objects up into Amazon. What I'm going to do is use this capability called notification services. Amazon has this thing called SNS, or Simple Notification Services. And with Storage Grid 11, I can set a rule basically on a bucket, and again, or a bucket and prefix, so I can be very granular, that whenever something gets put into that bucket, I send a notification in native Amazon format to Amazon that says, hey, something just landed in this bucket. And that can then trigger a workflow from Amazon to do whatever needs to happen. So I might have a little Lambda job in Amazon that says, oh, an image showed up in storage grid bucket um, customer faces. And I want to run recognition, and I want to go update the metadata of the object in storage grid with emotion, age, Glasses, no glasses. I mean, I keep using that one because I've, I've actually played with that one, and it, <laughs> it detects my bifocals quite well. Um, and, you know, in that case, the data's really never lived in S3. That's That sounds like a really interesting and tremendously useful set of features, right? Because one of the biggest things most people have with using hyperscale cloud, right, using something like uh, uh, Azure Blob or... S3 is the cost of ingress egress. So if you're not having to do all of that or not having to do as much of that anyways, it seems like it would be a much more effective. Yeah, and you certainly wouldn't have to move the object back and forth. You can update the metadata. Um, the object doesn't have to live within S3, so that can drive your cost down. But, but just as more importantly, maybe sometimes this is data that you don't necessarily want to leave or be hosted somewhere else. Um, there's one other capability um, that we've added as well, which is we've added a native integration to Elasticsearch with the product. It's also done at a bucket level, um, and it, it can leverage Elasticsearch whether it's sitting as a service in Amazon or whether you have your own Elasticsearch instance running on-premises. And, and in this situation, the way it works is you drop an object into this bucket. If this bucket is configured this way, it's going to stream the metadata from that object into Elasticsearch. And then you could use any of the visualization capabilities you have layered on top of there, You know whether it's uh, drawing a blank. <laughs> Lots. <laughs> so what's an Elasticsearch for those of us that aren't aware? So this is a um, scalable search engine capability that um, can be delivered on-premise. It can be delivered in the Amazon cloud. It allows you to build um, essentially uh, structured queries against collections of unstructured data, right? Um, 
This is essentially to speed it up so you don't have to crawl through a bunch of metadata? Yeah. This way, I don't have to build a search capability directly into my product that you know, when only a small percentage of my data I might be interested in applying search to. So it we, we, you know gives me more deterministic scaling and performance and so on. And, you know, Elasticsearch is really kind of in this area, the industry leading example, um, and it can be delivered via cloud or on-premises. So we just felt this was the way to go. Okay. Anything else in 11 that we want to talk about? Uh, yeah, there's always more stuff. Oh, good. Um, it, was a, it was a big release. Um, so uh, people who are familiar with Storage Grid and have seen kind of our GUI and, and reporting and so on, we provide tons of metrics, right? Everything from your S3 operations per second, capacity use, trends, and all of those kinds of things. But people always want something different than what you give them, right? <laughs> so... You know, the answer to that is everything you do with with Storage Grid with our UI, you can always do with RESTful Management API as well, right? In fact, our our GUI, from what I understand, was written using our APIs. Um, but we've taken that a step further by adding the ability via Prometheus to pull metrics directly out of Storage Grid that then you could build your own, you know, rep- your visualizations, whether it's like Grafana or or whatever, right? Um, so what we see is I think that's going to be very interesting to especially our, kind of our service provider customers that are used to building these, you know, um, very uh, metric-dense dashboards in real time, you know, a view of everything that's going on with my environment, only looking at the things I'm specifically interested in. And and that's going to – that capability is going to continue to get better release after release. But the initial release of this capability was 11.0. So if we dig down a little into the speeds and feeds side of things, um, and Storage Grid has always been known for having multi-protocol on the front end and the back end, right? Is there any change to that? No new change into the protocols we support. So we support S3 and Swift as our object protocols. Um, we support SMB and NFS via something we call the NAS bridge, which is part of the product as well. Um, nothing new added there. Um, Performance has improved across the board, Um, certainly a significant performance bump in small object performance. Uh, We weren't bad before. We're just way better. Um, And I think this is really important, especially for things like IoT workloads where you might be dealing with with lots of small objects. Um, And to slightly diverge, um, performance has also increased because we've released a new generation of the appliances as well. So last time we chatted, we were selling uh, the Storage Grid SG5660 and 5612 appliances. That's our 2U12 and 4U60 drive appliances. Those have bumped uh, the generation of the controller. They're now the 5760 and 5712, um, uh, increase in the number of cores and memory and so on. So they're just faster. So has there been any any additions, any changes to, for example, the data protection policies? Because another great thing about Storage Grid, right, I can configure things like how many replicas of each piece or each object I want, um, whether or not I want to tier it you know, up or down, depending on different conditions, et cetera. No. So um, same, same capabilities there. You know, you have the choice via these policies that can be implemented at an object granularity whether I'm going to do n-way replication, 
whether I'm going to do any number of different types of erasure coding, dispersal schemes, including single site, multi-site, so on, that that all is still there. Um, we're seeing more partners taking advantage of the fact that we have these advanced uh, data protection policy capabilities and and help us provide higher value to the upper level application stack, as an example, by injecting rich metadata into uh, the object store for us to trigger on. Um, so that's one thing I'd say that's kind of, we're seeing more people use storage grid and take advantage of its values from that application stack than just as a big S3 target. So and last question on me quizzing you on the, uh, the data sheet for yeah. <laughs> uh, object counts. So I, I believe before the number I always heard was hundreds of billions. Yeah, yeah. Um, hundreds of billions is still the right object count. Um, Capacity-wise, greater than 100 petabytes in a single instance. Um, but one thing to note is, you know, here I can put my marketing hat on here for a moment and say, actually, no, you're totally wrong. It's unlimited in all dimensions now. And... I'm kind of telling the truth there because that cloud mirror capability that I talked about that allows you to replicate from us to Amazon, that also allows you to federate multiple storage grid instances. So you can have buckets that have replication relationships between two different storage grids or three different and so on and so on. So, um, you know, now you can start multiplying things. Um, I think you know we've we've been always at, at NetApp in general. I think we're very conservative in stating our limits. You're not going to see us go out there and state numbers that we don't have confidence in or we haven't tested directly. So I'm, I'm not going to come out and say trillion objects until I've seen it. You know, well, I, I think that's a really interesting use case, right? I, and I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but usually one of the statistics we hear quoted is how IoT and the the quantity as well as the the well, quantity both in number as well uh, of objects as well as uh, size of objects is doing nothing but going up and, yeah. and arguably going up exponentially. You know, as more and more people add things like, you know, I was talking with uh, one of my coworkers the other day, right? His uh, home automation system and just the number of little devices and other things inside of his house, right? Well, each one of those has things that it reports up. You know, it's internet connected TVs, right? All of these other things are, whether or not anybody knows it, right? They're all reporting data up. That's having things, having analytics run against it. Yeah, and that's only going to continue. Um, you know, we see I, media is one of my favorite use cases, and I, we see all across the spectrum of object sizes in media, right? If you're dealing in, in the animated features, you're dealing with very, very small uh, objects, you know, the, the shadow of that whisker above your lip, right? Um, versus in, you know, maybe live action, you might be dealing with full size, full length 8K video, right? So the ability to handle all of those things without having to worry about performance for large or small objects or scale or number of sites, those kinds of things, those are all uh, great reasons to look at object and, and super reasons to look at storage grid. So if I wanted to get a hold of storage grid and I were a customer, how would I do that? Uh, Easiest way is just give your SE a call, and um, we have evaluation uh, licenses of this product. So you can choose how you want to install it, whether you want to put it in your VMware environment or uh, just run it in Docker containers on bare metal. Um, no problem. Uh, so it's very flexible that way. If you're, if you're a field person or a channel partner of NetApps, we also have this running in our lab on demand. So that's an easy way to 
get up and running. Of course, you also can get access to evaluation licenses as well. Um, and we see a lot of these software-defined kind of deployments where it's virtualized or Docker, usually for kind of POC, pilots, smaller. And then as people start scaling into the many petabytes, they just start deploying the appliances, racking and stacking those things. And just to be clear, you can, if you opt to purchase Storage Grid, you can purchase the SG physical nodes from NetApp. You can run it as virtual machines in OpenStack and VMware. You can run it. It's deployed as containers. Um, so it, it just Docker run, um, although I think there's a, a management script that sits in front of that, if I remember correctly. We have a something playbook of some variety for orchestrating the Docker installation and provisioning, but uh, I should know the name of that. But <laughs> And you can mix and match all of those different node types inside Absolutely. of a single cluster. Yeah, mix and match different appliance types, mix and match appliances with software, and we see that frequently. Um, you can start very small and grow very large all from one instance. And I'll tell you, that that sounds, well, well everybody can do that. That's not necessarily true. A lot of a lot of the competitors, you know, you, you would be very difficult. It would be very difficult for you to do a very small deployment without trashing the whole thing in order to deploy at scale. You know, we can we can let you build this thing, test it, figure it all out, and when you're ready to go to production, just start racking and stacking however you want to go. For those in the spring that are going to are part of our media and entertainment area, customers and whatever, I'll be at NAB and look forward to seeing people there. That's the Funnest trade show of the year. That is just a blast. What is NAB? Oh, uh, National Association of Broadcasters. It's ah. the it's the media show, and, and the the toys that they have on that show floor are just insane. It's crazy. You need to figure out a way to get object storage at CES, so you can go to. Yeah, I did CES once in a previous life, and man, that's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Duncan, thanks for joining us today and giving us the lowdown on the latest Storage Grid release. Um, again, if we want to reach you on social media, is it NC Dunk? NC Dunk with a C. With yes. a C. Two Cs, actually. What? Yeah, <laughs> yeah the C and NC, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Just confusing me more. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you'd like to share today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Duncan Moore for joining us and talking about Storage Grid today. As always, thanks for listening. I got to go to training this week. Ooh, what did you train for? learning how to present oh you did that i did that a couple weeks ago so i heard you left quite the impression they had to redesign it (laughs) (laughs) me and gabs were like yeah this isn't right why well this is why oh yeah i guess you got a point there so hopefully it uh worked out for you you know what i the instructor remembered you because apparently the first morning you looked very grumpy i was so grumpy (laughs) so grumpy (laughs) i don't have a very good poker face